Big Mac Chicken McNuggets. No, Big Mac and Quarter Pounder with cheese. Or filet fish You'd be doing the same thing if you were at McDonald's because you can choose not just one, but two of your favorites for just six bucks. Tasty Big Mac, crispy 10-piece chicken McNuggets, juicy Quarter Pounder with cheese, or savory filet fish Enjoy two of your all-time favorites for just six bucks, if you can decide on the two. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Single item at regular price. Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. The buckets you buy at Ace hold paint, dirt, and debris. But our Children's Miracle Network buckets hold so much more, like dreams, hope, and care for children. Because over the last 29 years, with your help, Ace has raised over $125 million for local CMN hospitals. So stop by your local Ace this weekend to make a $5 donation and get a 5-gallon bucket plus 20% off almost anything that fits inside it. Offer valid on regular price merchandise. Additional exclusions apply. See store for details. Welcome to Active Shooter, the podcast. After decades now of mass shootings, mass shootings, mass shootings, we haven't found the answer. A tribute to the victims of two mass shootings. A tribute to the victims of two mass shootings. Thank you for listening to Active Shooter, the podcast. You are listening to Active Shooter, a podcast that may contain adult themes, explicit language, and graphic depictions of violence. Portions of this show may be traumatic for those under 18. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning. On the island of Tasmania, the worst massacre in Australian history is finally over. At least 34 people were killed and four others critically wounded when a 29-year-old gunman with a history of mental problems opened fire in a popular tourist area. The carnage came to an end only this morning after the gunman caught fire following a 12-hour standoff with police. He's alive and in custody today, Monday, April the 29th. 1996. Port Arthur, Tasmania, Australia, was a town that was used in the 1800s as a convict settlement. Some of the hardest criminals were sent to the peninsula, which consisted of multiple different buildings that today stand as mere ruins. Port Arthur is now a popular tourist site where people travel from all over the world to view the broken down buildings. Over 150 years later, the tourist town would become home to the worst massacre Australia would see to date. If you've listened to our prior episodes, you know that the Active Shooter podcast team has taken the No Notoriety Pledge, and we will not be sharing the real name of the shooters that we cover. We will be giving the shooters a pseudonym and refer to them by that name throughout the episode. This will help in clearing up any confusion in the story while remaining true to our pledge and not naming the shooter by their actual name. In today's episode, we will be referring to the shooter as Mark. On April 28, 1996, Mark was 28 years old and some would say had hit rock bottom. His best friend and girlfriend had died in a car crash and he himself was injured in the crash and had spent quite some time in the hospital. He was living in a mansion he once shared with his prior girlfriend. Mark had a new girlfriend now, but he never seemed to be happy. He felt like the world was out to get him and thought of himself as a nobody. Mark left his mansion in Newtown, securing the electronic alarm at 9.47 a.m. He had a green duffel bag with him that he had stashed three firearms in, as well as two sets of handcuffs, ammunition, a sash cord rope, and a hunting knife inside. In the trunk of his yellow Volvo station wagon, he had several cans of gas as well as additional guns and ammunition. He also had a surfboard affixed to the roof of the vehicle. He waved goodbye to his girlfriend, who was a bit confused since she had never known Mark to be a surfer. 
but he said that he was going to be going to Roaring Beach to catch some of the waves. Instead, Mark drove to a bed and breakfast located near the water on the Tasman Peninsula. He nonchalantly walked through the front door of the guest house and immediately opened fire, killing Nolene Martin, who went by Sally. When her husband, David Martin, came out to the front desk to see what all the commotion was about, Mark shot him dead too. Mark then took the keys to the guest house, locked the front door, and walked back to his vehicle and began driving toward the Port Arthur historic site. It only took him about 15 minutes to drive from the Seascape guest house to the historical site. Mark was stopped by a man named Ian Kingston, who was helping direct the never-ending stream of traffic that was approaching the site. Port Arthur was a large tourist attraction, and especially on the weekends had a lot of traffic coming in and out, both on foot and car traffic. Mark approached Ian in his yellow Volvo and asked Ian if he could park down near the Broad Arrow Cafe. Ian told him he couldn't park there and he would have to go to the main parking lot area. Mark thanked him and continued driving while Ian went back to assist the tourists. Out of the corner of Ian's eye, he saw Mark parking in the exact spot where minutes prior he told Mark he couldn't park. However, it wasn't worth the hassle for Ian to go and speak with Mark about moving his vehicle as he had enough on his plate at the moment. It became obvious by about 11 that it was going to be more busier than what they predicted. I think we had 14 coaches end up coming in. Car parking was getting a bit of an issue because visitor centres there now wasn't there in those days. Everyone used to park under the oak trees and, you know, it was really limited. Didn't recognise him. He'd been around in the area when he was a kid growing up and... He was entirely different to what he used to be, like he'd grown up and matured. When he drove in on the day, he wanted to park down near the jetty. And um, I pointed out to him that he couldn't do that because there was already about eight coaches there. So he said, oh, can I park in front of the information centre? And uh, I said, well, it's better if you park along under the trees, under the oak trees. He wanted to get on the 130 ferry. I said, well, you'll have to get a boarding pass from the information centre. He tried to get on the boat, couldn't get on. So he got back in the car and went and parked down in amongst all the coaches where we didn't want him to park anyway. I watched him do that. He uh, sat there for half a minute. He got out of his car. On the back seat of his car, he had a, like a golf bag type of thing, a big bag. And I saw that as he drove in. Anyway, he mucked around the back seat got this bag out, put on his shoulder. Anyway, I didn't really take a lot of notice of it. Then he went in the boot, and he was mucking around in the boot of the car. That took him a couple of minutes, fiddling there, doing whatever he had to do. Then he walked up to the cafe. Ian saw Mark start walking towards the cafe as he went back to his own work. Carrying the duffel bag, Mark walked into the Broad Arrow Cafe. He immediately noticed all of the people inside. The restaurant was quite small, and the 60 or so people that were packed inside made it appear even smaller. In addition to the restaurant, there was also a gift shop inside the cafe. Mark was hungry and wanted something to eat. He walked up to the counter and ordered some lunch. After his lunch was ready, he took his lunch tray and duffel bag and walked to a table just outside the doors of the restaurant. He struck up a conversation with a person at a table nearby and casually asked the customer if he had noticed all the yellow jacket wasps in the area. After he finished his lunch, Mark walked to the back of the restaurant and was seen putting a video camera on an empty table. Within seconds, 
Mark took out a rifle, specifically a Colt AR-15 SP-1 carbine, and opened fire. He was fire at random, without any aim whatsoever. Within 15 seconds, Mark had fired 17 shots, instantly killing 12 people. He started walking around the cafe, firing an additional 12 shots, killing 8 more, and wounding several others. Then he reloaded his weapon and walked out of the cafe towards his waiting vehicle, all while firing at people who were now fleeing the scene after hearing gunshots. Along the way, he managed to kill an additional four innocent people. Meanwhile, Ian had heard several loud banging and popping noises. He ran to the cafe to see what the ruckus was, thinking it was an electrical fire. Once he got to the cafe, he walked into complete carnage. All he saw were bodies and blood. Ian didn't even know where to start. Mark didn't drive very far before he took the lives of his next victims. Nanette McCack was fleeing the deadly massacre with her two daughters, three-year-old Madeline, six-year-old Alana. Mark drove just under a thousand feet, where he parked his vehicle on the side of the road and got out. While Nanette was on her knees, she was begging Mark to please don't hurt her babies. He fired two shots toward Nanette, Madeline, and Alana. One shot hit Nanette, and the other shot hit three-year-old Madeline. Alana, knowing that her life was now in danger, took off running. Mark hunted her down and fired one shot at the six-year-old Alana, killing her instantly as she hid behind a tree. He nonchalantly walked back to his vehicle and drove away. The Mikaks, they wanted to go home, and that was where we lost them. They just veered off and unfortunately went the wrong way. How dare someone murder two little kids after murdering their mother and chase one of them around a tree to kill her? It just beggar's belief. Shortly down the road, Mark saw a gold BMW parked on the side of the road with four people inside the car. Mark proceeded to park his vehicle, get out, and walk over to the BMW. He shot all four of the occupants, dragged their bodies out into the road, and stole their car, abandoning his Volvo. He continued driving until he saw a white Toyota. There were two people in the vehicle. The passenger was a male and the driver was a female. He ordered the man out of the car and into the trunk of the stolen BMW. Mark went back to the Toyota and fired two shots into the windshield on the driver's side, killing the women instantly. After Mark had finished his mission at Port Arthur, he drove the BMW to the Seascape Bed and Breakfast. However, his actions had escalated as he now had a hostage. Mark proceeded to light the vehicle on fire, and then he and the hostage went inside the bed and breakfast. Once inside, Mark called triple zero, which is equivalent to 911 in the United States, to report the vehicle fire. Investigators believe that Mark reported the vehicle fire in an attempt to lure police to the house so he could shoot them one by one as they approached the bed and breakfast. As the police officers started showing up, Mark started shooting at the officers from inside the guest house. Luckily, no officers were shot. This included police officers, detectives, as well as police tactical group or a SWAT team. Not long after, the negotiators were called in to help with the scene. Have you uh, done any training to become a pilot? No. What, sorry? You can buy a helicopter. I've got the money. Don't you understand? I've got the money. I've got all the wealth I want. All right. Right? What's the time now? Terry McCarthy was one of the negotiators who appeared to help lure the gunmen out of the guest house. Terry knew that Mark was talking to him on a cell phone, and Terry knew that cell phone batteries would eventually die. What we weren't aware of at that particular time was that the only phone within the Seascape property 
was a battery-operated cordless phone. We were aware that he was using that phone, but we, had, we didn't have the knowledge that there wasn't a backup landline phone that he could pick up in the event that that went flat. So that created, us, uh, created some problems for us when, of course, it, it was apparent that the battery had gone flat. The difficulty, of course, is how do you get a telephone into a situation like that safely? Mark continuously fed Terry lies, telling him that he hadn't done anything wrong and that he had indeed been surfing. Mark also told him that he had multiple hostages and was fixing them food. At some point during the conversation, Mark had fired a single shot and killed the hostage inside the guest house. After many hours, Mark's cell phone battery died, just as the negotiators feared. The way he spoke was more like a young teenager rather than an adult male. He was telling us stuff that was completely false. He said he'd been out surfing or something like that, and it was complete nonsense. So there wasn't anything uh, useful happening in that communication. We didn't establish that rapport um, because there was no rapport to establish. He was in denial as to what had occurred in terms of he wasn't even making reference to what had occurred at the historic site. He was talking about some fanciful event that he claimed had occurred at um, uh, another location at Fortescue Bay, which is also on the, on the peninsula. After 18 long and grueling hours, Mark lit the guest house on fire and attempted to flee the burning building. Not long after he had exited the building, likely by climbing out of a window, he was apprehended. When police apprehended him, he was on fire and screaming. After putting the fire out on his person, he was taken to the Royal Hobart Hospital and was put under strict surveillance to make sure he didn't leave the hospital. He was treated for severe burns on his back and buttocks. On April 30th, 1996, Mark was charged with his first of many murder counts. He also had his first hearing on this date via video from his hospital bed. There were many lives affected that day. 35 people lost their lives ranging in age from 3 years old to 72 years old, and additionally, 23 people were injured. To this day, the massacre is still the worst massacre in Australian history. Because of time constraints, we can't tell every victim's story. However, there is a link in the show notes that you can click, and it will take you to a document where you can read about each of the victims. Jason Bernard Winner was a 23-year-old man who was killed by gunshots to his hand, neck, chest, and head. Jason had sought cover while the massacre was taking place. Once he thought the shooter had left, he came out of hiding and ran right into Mark, who then proceeded to shoot and kill him. Tony Kiston was a 51-year-old man who was visiting the Broad Arrow Cafe with his wife. When Mark first entered the cafe and opened fire, Tony selflessly pushed his wife under a table and sacrificed himself. His wife's life was spared, but Tony would lose his because of a single gunshot wound to his head. Carolyn Lofton was at the cafe having lunch with her 15-year-old daughter, Sarah, when Mark opened fire. Carolyn's life was saved. However, her daughter Sarah died from a single gunshot to the head. As mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Port Arthur is a historical site with a very interesting past. It started as a timber station in 1830 in a convict settlement. Port Arthur is where some of the harshest criminals were sent and was known for having very strict security measures. Food was used as both a reward and a punishment. Guards would reward convicts with larger portions of food, tea, sugar, and sometimes even tobacco. 
Food was also used as harsh punishment. If you needed punishing, you were only given the bare minimum of bread and water. In 1834, the convicts started building ships. The convicts constructed 15 large ships and 140 smaller boats. Only the well-behaved convicts were given the privilege of building the boats. The worst of the worst convicts were sent to what was referred to as the separate prison. This special building was constructed after the main penitentiary was built and was meant to be used as a type of solitary confinement. When convicts were sent to the separate prison, they were ordered to wear a hood in complete darkness as they were not able to speak to anyone. Many of the convicts that were sent to the separate prison developed mental illnesses due to the solitary confinement treatment. Since the settlement was constructed right on the Tasman Peninsula, they had also various docking stations around the peninsula for boats to pull up to. In addition to building ships and boats, the settlement also offered regular boat maintenance and upkeep to anyone who needed it. Those dockyards still stand today. In 1842, a flour mill and granary were built to offer additional jobs to the convicts. In 1848, the settlement stopped making ships altogether. The number of convicts that were sent to Port Arthur started dwindling slowly. The number of convicts that were sent to Port Arthur started dwindling slowly at first, but then more and more convicts were being taken away from the settlement. In 1877, the last convict was shipped out. That same year, the Port Arthur area was given to private interests, and they began logging almost immediately. The settlement was no longer known as Port Arthur, but was now referred to as Carnivon. Several years later, there were two severe fires that ripped through Carnivon. One fire was in 1895, and the second was just two years later in 1897. Many of the original buildings that sat on the settlement were ruined from these fires, while others such as the penitentiary, the separate prison, and the convict hospital were completely gutted. The residents of Carnivon did what they could to make Carnivon a community. They added a post office and even a cricket club. By the 1920s and 1930s, Carnivon had three hotels and two museums. Almost all of the occupations that made up the community were tourist-related. In 1927, the residents reinstated the Port Arthur name. The settlement received funding in 1979 to restore and preserve this site as a tourist attraction. In 2016, Port Arthur had a population of just 251. In addition to the shops and cafes, the convict settlement is also referred to as an open-air museum. An open-air museum is a collection of buildings that are displayed outside in the open. Many travelers from all over the world go to Port Arthur to see the ancient settlement, which made it the perfect opportunity for Mark to open fire. In a small, narrow, upright cubicle in the chapel of the separate prison at Tasmania's convict settlement of Port Arthur. In the early 1800s, the difficult prisoners were placed in the separate prison. The intention was to break their spirit, not by the usual method of beating, but by keeping them entirely separate from one another. In fact, even in the chapel, they could look at the preacher who stood there, they could sing the hymns, but they weren't allowed to look at each other nor to speak to each other. That was the rule for the entire separate prison. Getting to the exercise yard provided a problem. A prisoner might actually see another prisoner. So they had a rule which said whenever two prisoners approached, one had to stop and face the wall while the other one walked past. Also, to make absolutely sure that prisoners couldn't recognise each other, they were required to wear special uniforms with hoods over their faces. To keep the noise level right down in the prison, the corridors were covered with a rough type of carpet, and the guards wore soft slippers. We will be right back after these short messages. 
Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. The buckets you buy at Ace hold paint, dirt, and debris. But our Children's Miracle Network buckets hold so much more, like dreams, hope, and care for children. Because over the last 29 years, with your help, Ace has raised over $125 million for local CMN hospitals. So stop by your local Ace this weekend to make a $5 donation and get a 5-gallon bucket plus 20% off almost anything that fits inside it. Offer valid on regular price merchandise. Additional exclusions apply. See store for details. Mark was born on May 7, 1967, at the Queen Alexandria Hospital and was raised in Hobart, Tasmania, in Australia. He was raised in a relatively normal household with a mom, dad, and sister, and as a baby, he was happy and content. Mark's mother did notice that Mark would reject all forms of physical affection while growing up and would push away any hugs or snuggles. The issues didn't get better as he got older, in fact. They only got worse. He was very hard to handle even as a toddler. Mark was always wandering off so much so that his mom would leave him on the house veranda tied up with a harness and leash surrounded by his toys to keep him busy and contained. As a toddler, he even swallowed a nail. Mark's mom also noticed that his speech development was rather slow. As soon as Mark started school, his parents noticed he began having even more issues. He was disruptive and sometimes even violent. Even as young as elementary school, Mark was aggressive, destructive, and tormented other children. Mark's teachers reported to his parents that Mark always seemed very distant and unemotional. At 10 years old, he was hospitalized because of burns he received from playing with fireworks. I broke the stick trying to get out, but I couldn't, and it made a hole through my jeans. Think you'll be playing with firecrackers anymore? Yes. Don't you think you've learned a lesson from this? Yes, but I'm still playing with it. According to his mother, Mark had a tendency to aggravate people, so he was always in trouble. Just like a lot of other shooters we have covered in this podcast, Mark also had a history of being bullied in school. In 1980, Mark was moved to the special education unit at Newtown High School. When Mark had turned 14, his father gave him an air rifle. Mark immediately started using the air rifle irresponsibly. He would shoot small animals and hide behind bushes firing the rifle at cars as they drove by. One time he shot a parrot out of a tree with the air rifle. When the helpless bird fell from the tree, he continued to shoot it in the head until the parrot was dead. On May 6, 1983, the day before Mark's 16th birthday, he left school and never returned. He was deemed unemployable because he would constantly upset and annoy people, making it impossible for him to hold a job. Not until the psychiatrist told us. They said he would never ever be able to hold a position down. Um, simply because he would aggravate people to such an extent that he'd always be in trouble. Mark received a disability pension, but would also pick up odd jobs as a handyman and as a gardener. In 1987, Mark met a 54-year-old woman who was very, very wealthy. Mark was only 19 years old when he befriended the woman and moved in with her into her mansion. While together, they spent a lot of money. They would go shopping almost every day and eat out at expensive restaurants. The woman's elderly mother also lived with them in the mansion. They were a rather odd trio. There were about 40 cats living in the garage and 14 dogs living inside the house. In 1990, someone made a complaint to the health department complaining about the dilapidating condition of the mansion. Not only were the animals using the home as their own bathroom, but there were also dirty dishes and trash everywhere. The elderly mother had an untreated broken hip as well as an infective leg ulcers. 
She was taken to the hospital and later a nursing home where she eventually passed away. The women also had health issues and had to spend a short amount of time in the hospital. Cleanup order was placed on the home, requiring that it be cleaned before it was deemed habitable again. Mark and his father took it upon themselves to clean the mansion from top to bottom. In 1991, Mark and his lady friend moved to a 72-acre farm once again, and once again started collecting animals. On October 20, 1992, the woman was driving her vehicle with Mark in the passenger seat when, without warning, Mark leaned over and jerked the steering wheel out of the woman's hands. This was something he had done before, and whether it was a form of aggression or just joking around, no one really knew. This caused the woman to steer into oncoming traffic and cause a head-on collision. The woman died in the traffic accident while Mark was severely injured. He suffered from back and neck injuries, causing him to spend about seven months in the hospital. The wealthy woman left everything she owned to Mark, including the 72-acre farm and the mansion. He received over $550,000 in assets. Because he quickly inherited a large amount of money and his lack of maturity, Mark's mother took guardianship over him and his funds. Mark's father became the caretaker at the farm while Mark lived at the family's home as he was still recovering. In August of 1993, Mark's father went missing. He was found on August 16, 1993, in a dam near the farmhouse with a weight belt around his neck. His death was ruled a suicide. His father committed suicide from what we understand from the sheer burden of trying to keep this kid who he loved but he knew was, could become dangerous on a leash. Because of Mark's father's death, Mark received approximately another $250,000. After the death of his father, Mark decided to sell the farmhouse and move back into the mansion. He was able to sell the farm for about $143,000. Not long after the death of his wealthy friend, who Mark claimed to never have a sexual relationship with, and the death of his father, Mark's mental status continued to deteriorate. His drinking increased, and in 1995, he became suicidal. Mark would also dress oddly. He would wear a gray linen suit, lizard skin shoes, Panama hat, and would carry a briefcase. He also had an electric blue suit with flared trousers and a ruffled shirt. He would normally wear this outfit out to restaurants where others would continuously make fun of him. Although he didn't seem to care about this, his suicidal thoughts and drinking increased greatly. Mark would drink about a half bottle of Sambuca and a full bottle of Bailey's Irish Cream almost daily. In addition to the Sambuca and Bailey's, he also enjoyed drinking wine and other alcoholic drinks that were on the sweeter side. Shortly after the massacre, in an interview with police, Mark said that he had thought about the massacre anywhere from 4 to 12 weeks prior to the actual shooting. Mark was born with a personality disorder. He was intellectually impaired, and he was possibly on the autism spectrum. A court-appointed psychiatrist would later state that Mark was socially and intellectually impaired, but had no signs of schizophrenia or a mood disorder. One of the psychiatrists said that Mark was clearly a very disturbed person, but he was not mentally ill and was competent to stand trial. Mark had a limited vocabulary and couldn't read or write. When he spoke, he often misused and mispronounced words. Months before the shooting, Mark started taking antidepressant medications, but he reported to others that they weren't working and he was still feeling depressed with suicidal thoughts. It was determined that Mark was mentally impaired as a result of the low-level intelligence, and he had an IQ of only 66. For perspective, the average IQ in the United States is 98. As previously mentioned, Mark was charged with his first count of murder on April 30, 1996, from his hospital bed via court video system. His trial was set for November 7, 1996. 
Initially, Mark pled not guilty to all charges, but would later change his plea to guilty. Mark later stated that he was pressured into giving a guilty plea by his defense attorney, Mark Avery. He pled guilty to 72 charges, some of which included murder, attempted murder, causing grievous bodily harm, and arson. On November 22, 1996, just two weeks after giving his guilty plea, Mark was sentenced to 35 life sentences, plus an additional 1,035 years, without the possibility of parole. In other words, he will never be released from prison. In the first eight months of his prison sentence, he was confined to a specially built suicide cell, which was a lot like solitary confinement. For 10 years, Mark stayed in protective custody until he was moved to a newly built prison nearby. On November 13, 2006, more than 10 years after the massacre, Mark was sent to Hobart's Wilfrid Lopes Center. The Hobart's Wilfrid Lopes Center was a secure mental health facility that was specifically built for inmates. The center had 35 beds for inmates with mental health issues of all kinds. The inmates that were staying at the center were monitored and treated like inmates, but they weren't locked down like most prisons and could move freely throughout the center. On March 25, 2007, Mark attempted suicide for the first time by cutting his wrists with a razor blade that he had taken apart. On March 27, 2007, just two days later, Mark attempted suicide yet again with a razor blade that he had taken apart. As of 2015, Mark was housed in the maximum security unit at Risden Prison, and he claims to have no memory of the killings. The Port Arthur massacre brought forth many issues with gun laws that Australia had that were hidden in plain sight. Because of the massacre, gun laws had to be modified drastically, and the government knew they needed to do something. The government put a nationwide ban on all semi-automatic and automatic firearms. To encourage citizens to give up their firearms, the federal government paid for a buyback where the government would buy back all semi-automatic and automatic firearms from its citizens. Over 750,000 guns were bought back by the government. Mark's mother still visits him when she is allowed to. Sometimes Mark refuses to see her when she visits, but he never really gave any sort of reason why. His mom complained that he wasn't being taken very well care of while in prison because he had become overweight due to his medications he was taking, lack of exercise while in prison, and poor nutrition. Lack of, through the medication, which puts weight on, and also lack of exercise. There were different conspiracies that were erected by people in the community. Some citizens say that it was a government conspiracy, and that the massacre was created as an excuse to ban guns. There were also people that argued Mark was never given a fair trial. No fingerprints were taken, and there was no ballistic evidence, while some people believe that it wasn't him at all. When he was questioned, um, probably for weeks after, before I saw him again, um, he always said he was never in Port Arthur at Broad Arrow. A lot of people on that day... Uh, came forward after and they said, as far as they were concerned, they didn't recognise the gunman. There will always be different theories for each and every shooting that happens in the world. It is up to each and every one of us to take a stand and speak up when we see something. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Actor Shooter, the podcast. Make sure to check us out on social media. We have a newly formed discussion group on Facebook. Just search for Active Shooter, the podcast discussion group. You can also find us on Instagram at Active the Podcast and Twitter at Podcast Active. For just a dollar a month, you can get access to ad-free episodes, early release episodes when available, and a shout-out on the show. Just go to www.patreon.com slash activethepodcast. Thank you, and be safe.
Hey, do you like politics, conspiracy, current events, and just plain whimsical nonsense? These topics and more can be found on the Question Everything Guys podcast. A weekly episode podcast available on iTunes, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and various other podcast hosting platforms. No topic is ever too serious. None of the jokes are politically correct, and all of the questions come with minimal answers. What? Come join your host, Lanny B. Sean. The Mick. On on the the Question Question Everything Guys podcast. That's gold. Ladies and gentlemen, if you guys want to break away from the everyday norm of politics, gossip, everybody else telling you what to do, come check out Jace the Producer Presents The Shuffle. Find me on your favorite podcasting app. I'm on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Spotify, and Stitcher. And of course, you can hear me on a few select internet radio stations. We call this The Shuffle because I don't stick to just one general idea theme, whatever, I let the music tell the story for me. So if you like music and you want to break from your everyday grind, come check out Jace the Producer Presents the Shuffle on your favorite podcasting apps today. Sources, Robert Wainwright and Paola Totero from the Sydney Morning Herald, Emily Crane from the Daily Mail Australia and Australia Associated Press, Ben Hill from the Daily Mail Australia, The Port Arthur Massacre by Jack Rosewood.